tonight. It's the uh, Bye Brad edition of Spin Cycle. I should have said that differently. It's tonight. It's the Bye Brad. How would you say that? Bye Brad. Yeah, I guess. It's got to have like an upward inflection where it's like, bye Brad. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we'll get to that. Uh, The show that acts as a kind of help group for the news obsessed, broadcasting (laughs) from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and I've got one buddy back this week. G'day, Charlie. <laughs> Jess, I'm sorry that we abandoned you so early in the year. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I'm sure I'll do it right back at you at some point. Uh, we're going to be welcoming Tito Ambio to the studio, a writer and lecturer in journalism at RMIT, for a general chat about the state of the news media and what the future of journalism looks like, given he's holding the beating hearts of our future journalists in his little hands as a lecturer. And hopefully it's not all grim. Um, But first, getting back to Brad, a fab little moment in reporting graced our screens this week on the Four Corners episode that investigated supermarket price fixing when reporter Angus Grigg interviewed the Woolworths CEO Brad Banducci and I loved the way he was wearing his cute little Woolworths T-shirt with his fancy little gold Woolworths badge. How that must have landed for for the people who worked there. Yeah, as though he was just a regular little (laughs) shelf stacker. Uh, But it didn't... (laughs) Who's walking up with, like, what, $23 million? 24, Charlie. 24, 24. I apologise. Yeah, so... So it didn't go quite as planned because um, he made a, a what he thought was obviously a very clever little joke about someone retiring and the very next day Brad was um, out the door. What happened, Charlie? Yeah, so um, during it, I mean, it's a nice little reminder of what what journalism can actually achieve. It's the first time I've seen a big scalp of this sort for quite a long time. Uh, Banducci... Um, sort of in an offhand kind of way during one of the interviews that he did with the ABC uh, mentioned that um, former ACCC uh, chairman who criticised him in the past, he was retired, by the way. That's all he said. And then... But he did it in such a way. In a very... In what, you know, and sure, you, would, you, might, you might watch that interview by itself and go, oh, well, that's a bit off He was just or being a, bit a little gross. bit snarky. But, like, Whatever. That probably wouldn't have cost him his job. But then the next time he comes in for the interview, he starts sort of asking basically for that to be struck struck from the record. Um, and then within, I think, two days, it was Monday night and then yeah. Wednesday morning, he was, he, he'd resigned. And, 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 and the, the Woolworths did say that this had nothing to do with any external factors, but it very much gave the impression that it did have quite a lot to do with this catastrophic PR. Well, it was, I think what I found amazing about that was um, Angus uh, Grigg, the reporter, uh, when I watched it, there was something so electric the way, about the way that he handled it because he wasn't simping to this CEO in any... There was was no deference. There was no deference. He treated him like another human being. Which, which, which should just be normal. Mm. However, we have come to perhaps... Like I don't think we see interviews like that as much anymore when it's when it's sort of just laid out in front of you because what happened was Brad made a very snarky comment about um, the former head of the ACCC 
was like he was re- he's retired by the way as though anything that he had to say on the issue was irrelevant because he's been laid yeah. out to pasture yeah. uh, Angus reminded him well actually he was in the job not less than 18 months ago so mm. that's a bit unfair and that was all it took to unravel Brad in his entirety and Brad mm. was like oh yeah I shouldn't have said that instantly you could just see the heat rising I could just imagine the faces of his PR people well, off camera. I mean literally they describe it because he he, he actually stormed off the set well, for a few minutes but I and then was coaxed to before kind of return. He, before he did that though he sort of um, said to Angus, oh, uh, we don't need to include that, do we? We're not going to include that. Sort of as right. though that was a done deal. Like, hey, I'm mm. the CEO guy and I'm just telling you, we don't need to include that. And Angus was sort of like, well, well, mate, you're on the record, but anyway, let's move on. And mm. just that in that was enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was enough to send him into a, he's like, I'm, I'm done, I'm done, because he couldn't get it struck the, the, in the moment. He couldn't get... He couldn't get that removed. He realised he'd done something or said something that perhaps was going to come across in the wrong way that wasn't going to suit the sort of the corporate image that he wanted to portray. And, you know, he was like, okay, I'm going to fix this right now. I'm going to tell the journalist we want this off the record. The journalist is going to agree with me. And because Angus stood his ground, that was enough. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, that that language is very uh, familiar to anyone who's done journalism for any time, that you ask a tricky question or you you know you're going to – even if it's like a minor thing that you might reveal that kind of embarrasses a politician, you'll get their media folk being like, well, it's not really a story, is it? I mean, I think we both agree it's not really much of a story. And you kind of have to, like, train yourself because the natural human instinct is to be like, I'll be agreeable. I will – not try and make this conversation. You've got to like really steal yourself mm. to um, to say. Oh, well, I mean, I think it's it's. Well, we'll see. I suppose if it's interesting when we publish it. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it, again, it just it, it, it all, it's all part of the same thing. I suppose is the idea that you know it's always brought up like that. You know, in the early eighties, there's this flurry of ministers who resigned for things that you know would never be an issue now. Like there's the uh, Michael McKellar, who was um, a government minister for the in the Fraser government. Um, he brought a black. He brought a color TV. He imported a color TV into Australia, but I think declared it as black and white, which is a slightly lower duty thing. And he had to resign over that. And then, like a hawk minister, there was like a, a a teddy bear that didn't get declared. And he had to resign. And like you know, that's always the ones that people bring up are like, "There's no stands anymore." And then you can have like a figure like I don't want to be like. Gratuitous, but, like, but Angus Taylor, for example, who had like scandal after scandal kind of afflict his name over the course of 2019, mm. he remained energy minister or the, the the equivalent of it for the entirety of the Morrison government. But I guess you expect with 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 politicians, you expect that toing and froing of uh, with journalists, and they play that game of you know um, they it's a dance, and they play that they can sure. dis, oh, they God, can discredit yeah. reporters a lot more easily. I suppose mm. a CEO mm. or someone in this person's position. What I find quite um, just wild is that you know he's someone who has been in the public attention you know recently and also this idea or this this conversation around the the retail monopoly between Coles and Woolworths and price gouging and all that sort of thing this isn't a new conversation no no but but has he not faced any scrutiny like yeah, how yeah. has it got to this point where one little one little sort of 
hurdle in an interview and, you know, which, and the whole episode of this Four Corners program was about price gouging and a, and a, and a monopoly. And he just fell over in the media. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, uh, I was shamed into resigning two days later. Like it is, it's a thing. I mean, like, and I hope what, this means that there's a lot more interviews like this in the future. Hopefully. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 um, I mean, I think as actually like, and this, this will sound like it's, um, uh, denigrating the episode, uh, which is not. It's it's a really good piece of journalism, but it's not. Um, oh no, he's on a pedestal for me right now. I guess. Yeah, was, well, it's because, beautiful like, to watch. It wasn't. Um, you know, the, the, as as you kind of hinted at, there wasn't any great revelation in this uh, piece that we didn't already kind of know in terms of how Coles and Woolworths, you know, use their monopoly power or their duopoly power to uh, squeeze customers and bully. Suppliers, we kind of, we all sort of knew that. It's just the fact that he got the guy in the room and showed, and that's actually uh, uh, Alan Fells, who was another quote unquote retired A Triple C chair. He's um, never gone away though, has he, Alan Fells? No, no. But he was like, I think part <laughs> of the reason is that there's a whole bunch of um, of public inquiries into Woolworths and Coles and, and and the price gouging kind of issue and the. And I think they, that, that, you know, they may have looked at his performance under kind of very mild questioning. Thought we don't want him forgetting what on the record means in front of a Senate inquiry. You know? There was another moment that I thought was just beautiful as well. And I suppose in to this is why I think this was really good, a good sort of investigative, you know, report or. A, piece of TV that they turned into this drama when, you know, perhaps there weren't any grand in- informational revelations, but, yeah. but putting him and the CEO of Coles, I'm sorry, I forget her name right now, in the chair just showed, just, just, it just said so much, you know, it was one of those classic interview techniques of luring people <laughs> into a situation where they feel like their media training is just going to be fine. I'm going to put on yeah. the T-shirt. I'm going to put on the badge. I'm just going to, you know, relate to the um, mums and dads doing it tough and we're doing everything we can. And they just didn't see themselves coming undone. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, uh, uh, we have to say that no one would be happier about this week than Leah Wecker, the CEO of Coles. Well, because Coles, if, Leah, okay. if you hadn't watched that episode, you'd you be forgiven for not knowing that she was even interview there was a fabulous was, yeah. there was a fabulous moment though where in her interview where um uh angus asked her about um you know about sort of price competitiveness between coles and woolworths and price gouging and stuff and then she goes into great detail about mm-hmm. um you know about how every week they have loads of um people going in and price checking all over the country in Woolworths and you know everyone knows exactly what each other is doing and you know she's just being really effusive about it as though it's full transparency and then he sort of turns around and says but you know isn't that just the definition (laughs) of price gouging and she just said nothing did not respond. There were no ums and ahs. She just sat there like a stone. Like, perhaps if I don't move. <laughs> like, it's floor... like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. If I don't move, it won't see me. <laughs> the floor will just open up. But at least she took the smart approach, really, of the two. Yeah. yeah. She, she fared better. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app.
Tito Ambio is an award-winning journalist, writer, researcher and lecturer in journalism at RMIT, where he's, he's been shaping j- journalism students' vulnerable little minds since 2013. When he moved to Australia from Indonesia, Tito worked at the ABC before focusing on research and training. He's been actively involved in improving diversity in Australian media uh, as a past committee member of Media Diversity Australia and now as vice president of the Melbourne Press Club. Tito co-hosts the Talking Indonesia podcast and after once tweeting, good journalism is activism, he had a whole article devoted to him in The Australian trying to prove him wrong. Welcome to Triple R, (laughs) Tito. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It's so great to have you here. And I mean, we are having this very broad conversation you know about journalism, but let's start with um, with that piece and and what you meant when you said good journalism is activism. Yeah, it is an interesting thing. I, th- I think I have to start saying. I mean, yeah, yeah, as you mentioned in the introduction, I grew up in Indonesia and I grew up in the nineties when. You know, I lived under a dictatorship, you know, Mm. so there was a clear enemy of freedom of speech. And the reason I became interested in journalism was because I wanted to be a part of that fight. You know, so Mm -hmm. for me, there was no and up to now, I think, you know, to talk about activism and journalism in a place like Indonesia, it's. It's very different uh, to when you talk about it in Australia. I think in Australia, a lot of newsrooms just discount the idea straight away, right? Mm -hmm. Activism, not allowed. Journalism, good. (laughs) But just any mention of activism um, and you're you're out, which is, I think, a very, very interesting thing for me as someone who comes from, yeah, kind of a place where the tradition of activism and journalism is kind of, you know, I think for me, I, I became a journalist because I wanted to see a change in the world, you know, and I think most journalists have that desire as well, you know, if not changing, at least telling a story about the things that they're passionate about. So, yeah. And I think that's relevant for journalists in many, if not most countries in the world, because the greatest risks for journalists are in countries where there is a threat Mm. because you're saying you're speaking truth to power in a way that is, um, you know, that actually does put your livelihood or your life at threat in some way. So you have to kind of take a stand, I suppose. And we're seeing that with journalists in Gaza at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, what we're seeing from, from, from Gaza and, you know, I think it's going to be very interesting as well. And I know we're going to be talking about this, about you know, who is a journalist who is, and you, in the last week you spoke mm-hmm. with Peter Grest about who's mm-hmm. a citizen journalist who's not, well, you know, he doesn't like that term and kind of agree with that to, to an extent. Um, and it is, I think, as at least as a part of a solidarity with, you know, global journalists, I think we need to, at least, I think Australian newsrooms need to be, a bit more open and see, okay, what's happening out there with other journalists? And, you know, we live in a peaceful, privileged, you know, country. What is it that we can do to help yeah, other journalists who are facing more challenges in their daily work? Which I, I suppose does come down to the idea, again, I suppose like you, you teach mm. student journalists and most student journalists would probably have drummed into them this idea that you... It has to be the voice from nowhere. It has to be, in, you know, it has been entirely neutral account. But I suppose the kind of the counter to that is that that a neutral view on the world is not possible and doesn't produce. You can't you can't even corral the facts mm. of the world into a story unless you take some position one way or another about power relationships or good or bad. Um, I, I suppose. I mean, it's a very big question. But is there is there a need for a rethink in oh, yeah. terms of 
what uh, what truly constitutes journalism. Yeah, and I think there's a new study uh, from Sweden about um, new satire program, like the Daily Show, uh, right. John Stewart, etc. Um, and you know, in in journalism studies, um, and you know, I, I, I kind of don't really study journalism studies, but I read the papers, and you know, they <laughs> you just teach it, <laughs> yeah, you just study it, it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I, I it, they have. Um, created this new role for the com- com- uh, com- comedic interlocutor, mm. which is a part mm. of a journalistic thing. So they're not. What the, I think the conclusion of the study is, if the question is, is new satire program like the Daily? Is it the Daily Show? It's called the Daily Show, yeah. right? Yeah, it, like the Daily Show, or is, even like here we've got the Charlie Pickering, like Charlie Pickering. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> yeah it, the question often people ask is, is that journalism? But I think with the study, what they're asking is. Um, well, it's not journalism or not journalism, but is it journalistic? Mm. Are yes. there aspects yeah. of what yeah. they do which is journalistic? And if you ask a lot of the producers, and this is what the study found as well, that yeah, there are they they they, they consider themselves as news shows and journalism shows. Yes, they don't look very different. Um, so you know, we're talking about. Well, you even think about like the McAuliffe show mm-hmm. and, um, you know, that was incredibly, it was just analysis of of politics and the political. Mm. The, and when you look at the news cycle, there is no analysis in a way, you know, when you're just doing the 24-hour news cycle, there's a lot of storytelling. Yeah. So there is definitely a, pa- a place for those kind of programs, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, the, this is something that I, I think we, you know, going back to your question, Charlie, uh, about about the, you know, whether we need a rethink. We definitely need, need a rethink of that, just, you know, black and white activism and journalism. They don't, mm. you know. But I think because when you look what's happening out there there are you know i'm, I'm i mean I, I know that you're writing a, an article about this jess right about yes uh, you can read about it in the next issue of the trip magazine <laughs> i never knew we could be in, like spruik up pieces of yeah. the trip if i'd known that i would have uh... I'll, I'll do this for you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know like people like purple fingers wrapping us right on online you know funnily he... enough he's interviewed in the same article <laughs> oh interesting <laughs> and you know i think you see a lot of the things that he does and you know as a journalism lecturer i see humor as well you humor but also there's a bit of journalism as well that he does right and now the question is okay what is journalistic what are the things that we need to keep um and what are the things that we can kind of change a little bit i guess um my question around that is you know because when we were sort of um ch- chatting in the twitter dms about this in a very contemporary interview style tito um the thing that um, you were talking about was um, in a lot of traditional newsrooms, there are so many systems in place and there are mm. a lot of – there's tradition, there's um, a lot of, you know, um, you know, I guess um, – System systems. I don't know if that's mm. the word, but that you have to report a certain way, so they're slow to change. But then, if you look at audiences and where audiences are getting their news from or getting their information from, and you look at the sudden acceleration in popularity of someone like Purple Pingers or whatever, it's like you could be the most inte- you know um, integrity driven newsroom in the world, but if no one's actually getting their news from you, <laughs> then well, yeah. surely you need to change the way you're doing news in a way. Yeah, sometimes I think about this like like science, right? Where if you're an amateur scientist and you like to just, you know, play around with some, you know, chemistry and, you know, in your garage or something, a lot of scientists would probably still say, Oh great, you know, you're doing science, you know, like you 
But if you want to do the real science, come to the university where we have the facilities, we have the yeah. structure, we have the system. With the resources to make The resources work, to yeah. make the real, like, you know. Uh, but, you know, people do uh, amazing things just be, being amateur scientists, mm. right? And I think what I, what I would love to see in the future is... F- for journalism to be the same, right? For people to see, oh yeah, people like Purple Pingers, you know, or you know, all these people who are doing citizen journalism stuff. Yeah, they they're great, but you know, it's there is a difference between watching. You know, if I can play basketball, I can just throw the basketball. You know, <laughs> but but you know, watching me and watching NBA, it, it's and but but you know, um, who's the biggest star in NBA these days? I don't follow NBA. Steph Curry. Steph Curry. Steph Curry. Oh, yeah, if Steph Curry sees me playing basketball, he's not going to say that's not basketball. <laughs> he's still going to say, yeah, it's basketball. It's a bit, you know, not good. But, but if you want to see the real pros, come to you know, mm-hmm. come to the ABC, come to the Guardian, or come to you know. Well, just to challenge that a little bit, I, I wonder, though, whether so someone like Purple Pingers, who's obviously very invested in one subject, so mm. it's, it's very much the rental crisis, and he's using traditional journalism techniques yeah. to um, tell stories. And, you know, he's even using the medium, like the f- using your own phone and, I mean, obviously he, still, he even uses a microphone even though he attaches yeah. it to <laughs> very random objects. You know, he's using a camera, he's reporting to camera, he's doing the research. Like there is, to me, the, I, I, I find it very ha- hard to distinguish between his videos, for example, and the kind of video journalism that, you know, other news organisations are trying to kind of mm. get up to speed with. And I wonder whether sometimes the audience is um, is drawn to people like him because they believe him. They believe that he genuinely cares about the subject and believes what he's talking about. Whereas we've seen, you know, when you talk about activism in newsrooms and I know that, um, you know, in Australia impartiality is prized, but there is activism. You know, we just saw recently Janet Albrechtson, um, who is a... Um, columnist at the Australian um, had 20, something like, uh, oh no, it was all up 273 interactions that, that the head of, Walter Sofronoff, the head of the Lerman Inquiry had with Australian journal columnists, but with Janet Albertson it was something like, um, oh no, it was 273 interactions with yeah, him right. during the life of that inquiry. How's that not activism? You know, but it's just a different type. I mean, I suppose I would say that she would argue I was simply trying to understand better with this insider figure. I'm not saying that's necessarily a defensive point I, I of view, but that would, that, be the, that would be the obvious... But then he's carrying favour by giving so much time to one reporter, so then there is, you mm. know, there's always an argument. I suppose what my question, Tito, in that very long window, because I've spent too much time thinking about this this <laughs> week, is, you know, when you talk about the um, traditional media organisations being the professional places to do that, do they need to change their systems, though, yeah, to it, to make sure that they maintain an integrity? They can't just say, well, this is how it's done. Mm. Um, I'm going <laughs> to... This is an idea that I've been thinking about. Like, I haven't actually written anything about this, but I've, I've been thinking about this. This is this. a great place yeah. to spit bullshit. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um I've been thinking about journalism commoning. So I don't know if you've ever heard of that word. It's a very academic thing, commoning, you know, making nouns into verbs, you know, making things (laughs) common. But it comes from a feminist kind of perspective of the commons. So the commons is the thing that we share together, like the air, water, etc. And journalism commoning for me is a process where we need to take the journalist out of the newsroom and into 
you know, like, and this idea of journalists being at pubs, you know, like, mm. you know, it, it probably started as because journalists go to pubs to talk to people. But now what we see is journalists go to pubs to drink with other journalists. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and I think that's, that's, for me, that's not the, the, the true spirit of that, uh, of that, that thing. Right? For, for, for me, I think journalism commenting needs to happen, which is, okay, if you're in a newsroom, Make sure that your journalists are out there and not stuck in the newsroom. Make sure you give time for your journalists to just hang out with people and talk to people and ask. So this is what I do with my students as well. I force them to think about, okay, what is good journalism to you? And then next week, I, you, they have to go to a suburb they've never been before and they have to ask people what is good journalism for you? And, that sounds so scary. Well, it is, it is a scary thing, but I think, and that's, that would be so scary for professional journalists, right? Mm. To go to, I live in Thomastown now, right? To go to a place like Thomastown, which is very rarely reported about. Mm. And for the journalists to go, okay, I'm from the ABC or something, you know, like, what is good journalism for you? I don't think people in Thomastown <laughs> would be very kind. <laughs> yeah, no. But I think that's what's needed, right? I think even just the act of asking, mm. the act, I think that's a part of this commoning thing. Yeah. Really. yeah, and it's also about, and I suppose part of what you're getting at is the idea of the, the comfort zone mm. and getting people out of it. Um, yeah. And I think there's a lot of, especially the, the higher you go in journalism, the more kind of like high-profile journalists that you get, they are, they've been ensconced in a very comfortable zone, often for quite a long time, with various people that they talk to every week about policy or about, like, inter yeah. uh party squabbles, and that's all they have to kind of deal with, and the reality of how these things impact human beings yeah, often and I, becomes a bit of a secondary concern. Yeah, and I think I, I'm kind of in, a, in, a, in an inter interesting place to... Because I've been teaching now for seven years, mm -hmm. so I've seen how, you know, a young person who enters one newsroom and then the way they then change... The yeah, way they think yeah. about the world, you know, because I could see the difference between when, you know, this person graduated until, anyway, if you just work in one newsroom. Yeah, you must have seen so many of your graduates now become journalists. Yeah, yeah. And many of them, I mean, I love my students and they're doing amazing things. Um, but yeah, one thing that I always tell them is just, you know, like always check your bias, including the biases that you form because you work for one place, you know, yeah. and that will create a new bias, you know, and I think. That's probably what a lot of journalists are thinking. You know, we're supposed to be experts in navigating biases, other people's biases. Yeah. We're not very good with navigating our own biases, I think. We've had a comment come in on the text line. Someone has said it's it's less of a question. However, it could, um, it could sort of bring up a discussion. Legacy media journalists seem more like propaganda foghorns rather than informers these days. Mm. What would you say to that? Well, I think that's a part of what we were talking about before. I think we have we have a problem with our brands, right? And the, mm -hmm. the, we have a problem with the way we practice journalism. Um, and I think what I want to say to people listening is journalism is hard. Journalism is expensive. Good journalism mm -hmm. takes a long time. Um, well, good journalism takes a long time. Good journalism... You know, and then you get sued, and you know, like, and this is the thing, right? If if you if you follow independent journalists or uh, people who are doing good journalism on social media, when they get sued, who's going to be? They have absolutely no structure behind exactly. them. Exactly. So there's really no structure. Yeah. There's no system. Mm -hmm. So in I think, a very, and I think again, it's always worth reminding people in an extremely complainant-friendly jurisdiction mm -hmm. like Australia, that is death to any kind of independent. Well, journalist. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Purple Pingers is very lucky. He's a lawyer. 
Well, yeah. Oh, that's actually, I was going to ask you about that, actually, yeah. So, so I, think, I think one thing that I want to say, you know, like, yeah, I, I can see where that's coming from. People, mm. people do say things about, you know, and, you know, like people who cover um, the, um, the, the Palestine rally in Melbourne, you know, if they're, if they're visibly journalists, you know, often they, they get, you know, they get yeah. sworn at. They get people mm. saying, why aren't you doing a better job? So there's a lot of pressure as well for journalists today. <laughs> Yeah, I guess um, one question I have around that is like, what? Actually, you go, Charlie, because I completely just forgot my question. Oh, okay. <laughs> I had a really good question. It'll come back. It'll come back. I mean, I think you know, there's 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 the obvious, um, the stuff that gets on everyone's nerves, which is like the Australian just running. That was it. Running on their front page, any <laughs> any speech that the prime minister is mm. about to do, where it's like that's not journalism. You just you just happen to work for the biggest newspaper in the country, so someone emailed you a speech before it happened. That's not insight. That's not investigation. Yeah. That's not um, you know interrogating a point of view. That's just access. That's just access that you are not going to do anything to stop yourself having. For example, I mean the thing I always think about. Sorry, I, I will stop this little rant, but the revelation it's very cathartic this conversation yeah, yeah it is <laughs> but like the revelation that um, Scott Morrison had sworn himself secretly into mm. a group of ministries everyone talks about what an incredible scoop that was that wasn't posited as a scoop that was something that was told to a friendly journalist it wasn't it, it wasn't was like this review. is a scandal it was mm. part of a yeah yeah um so I can see why that drives people insane. The, the other thing that obviously the obvious counter argument is th- we have to maintain this access or we'll never be able to get any access yeah. to this information that we use to then inform our readers. Well, I think, I think that, you know, in journalism, we talk about elite sources, right? And like, yeah. if you're a political yeah. journalist, then you have to develop your elite sources. I've never had elite sources <laughs> when I was a journalist because that's just not my game. Yeah. And I think because I hate to play that game where, yeah, you have to develop this relationship where, you know, I give you something, you give me something, yeah. and it's yeah. just like, and I think that's one of the challenges. And I think, you know, to go back to that comment, I think, yeah, I can understand why people think that way because yeah especially in australia we're not only talking about political journalism but also sports journalism right yeah, if you yeah. want to be critical to afl yes and you want to be a sports journalist good luck you can't mm, because yeah. they're often, often, they'll, often they'll send a political journalist to do that reporting mm. to kind of shield the sports journalist from doing it actually if i can um, um spruik up one of my former students carla <laughs> carla yeager who's doing sports uh, reporting oh, at yeah, the yeah. age she's doing amazing <laughs> things because she's not your traditional sports journalist mm-hmm. and i think she doesn't care about you know about those other things so i think but you know to be able to do that you just need to yeah you need to be really aware of what that can do to your career i mean yeah. i think that is a whole other kettle of, kettle of fish like people who want to enter a field of j- journalism where even they are not the norm so a woman entering sort of traditional you know like sports journalism we know a lot of the issues that have happened there like the locker room talk and and mm. that sort of stuff but before I go to that the thing that um I remembered before <laughs> was if you you know the um the, the, when we were, we were talking about this idea of legacy journalism seeming more propaganda the other thing that I think builds mistrust is journalists just hanging shit on other journalists mm. <laughs> like this is a huge thing in Australian media particularly obviously with News Corp and, and Murdoch um, papers and columnists in particular, like I'm sure, that, you know, not all journalists do this, but there's a huge thing of, and you had it when you made that comment in the on, on Twitter, but where um, 
they will spend very many precious column inches just having a go at what other journalists and other news organisations are talking about. Yeah. Why do they do this? Well, yeah, it is, it is an interesting thing. And I think it's a part of, of you know, why I think we need to take journalists, journalists out of the newsroom because I think, mm. you know, if you talk to a lot of Channel 9 journalists, you know, the, the, the only thing they care about is Channel Seven journalists. You know what they're doing, right. and you know, and mm. I think there's this competition that's being built. I mean, I'm just talking about Melbourne, right? Um, and if you're talking to, yeah, a lot of other people who are in journalism, it's. I mean, again, the obvious thing here is that the pressure, the job pressure, is so high. I, when I was a journalist at the ABC, I was probably writing one or two stories a day. A lot of my students, they do like five, six stories a day, you know, if they're working right. for a regional newspaper, for example. Yeah, yeah. So you don't really have time to, you know, think How about... How long are these stories, five a day? Oh, um, I'm not sure, actually, but it's, it's for, you know, regional newspapers, you know, so maybe like, you know, 400 to 800 uh, words. Um, but still, that's, that's pretty full on. That is full on. And so the pressure that they're under... Mm. Um, but yet to go back to the question of... Um, well, yeah, um, I suppose... What, what, what surprised me? And what, what surprised me when the Australian wrote that story about me because I just said. <laughs> and the they bothered to go and interview Peter Grest for they it. They interviewed as well. Peter Grest. <laughs> they assigned two journalists for it, right? And which based, on, based on you tweeting <laughs> one thing, which which for me is this is the problem, right? Oh. Uh, this, why I like. <laughs> They, yeah. you know, like you can do other things. You know, there are, <laughs> there are better things to write there about. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so I, I think I think that's that is a problem. I think I love I love reading like the media diary stuff. You oh, know, yeah, it's, it's kind cool. of fun. You know, but I, I mean, think, look at our show. It yeah, would exactly. be very hypocritical if we didn't. Yeah. admit that we do a similar thing. But um, I mean, there was a great Jan Fran who I'm loving her her mm. um, contributions on Instagram at the moment did a piece, did a, a video this week about, you know, the Australian did a piece on her. And it was pretty funny because they kept on sort of suggesting that the ABC should be looking at her social media content when she's actually not employed by the ABC. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, God, if you're going to sick your journalists on other journalists, you want to be accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not the... That's not the aim of those pieces, is it? That's it's deliberately vague. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I think I can. Burn, I think I pretty conclusively burn my bridges about ever working for the Oz. So, like, I can say it's not. That's not what the aim of reporting of that sort is. Is that's not the end game of it? Yeah, and I think if you if you want to be really clear about what you know what journalism we need in this country, I think that's not the kind of journalism we need, right? Like you know, media people, you know. Um, no. Talking about each other, I think, and I think what, and I think one of the things that we have to remember as well is that yeah, there are reporters out there who are just doing hard news reporting, but you know, I think in Australia we also need people who can tell us the story of Melbourne, for example. Right, the Age yeah. has been doing you know some really good stuff on this recently. You know, like with There's our friends Najma. Yeah, yeah, that's been great. Um, but I think that is lacking. Um, I would you know, ask newsrooms around Australia. And, I mean, I worked at the ABC for about eight years. And when I quit the ABC um, and just started basically just hanging around in Melbourne, and I was supposed to be someone who knew Melbourne, right? I was working at the ABC for eight mm -hmm. years. And then I met someone and she said, asked her where, uh, where did she live? And she said, Brooklyn. I was like, you're kidding. <laughs> I was like, no, Brooklyn. I was like, 
I didn't know that there was a suburb called Brooklyn in <laughs> Melbourne. And that's the time I realized, oh, my God, I've been working for the ABC for eight years. I had so little time to actually go out there, explore Melbourne, know the city, talk to people from Brooklyn, from Dallas, you know, all yeah. these places. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you ask me about Fitzroy, you know, like, yeah. I know a lot about Fitzroy because that's kind of where I live. But that's, that, and that, I think that was a wake-up call for me. Oh, my God, my journalism was so narrow. Mm. Which I guess comes again to the sort of the, 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 the business model of journalism in 2024 mm. and probably the decade leading up to it. The idea of news deserts, the idea that there are mm. a lot of parts of the world which have absolutely no local coverage. And, of course, isn't that the whole like, – and that used to be the, the, the kind of the reason for city papers. That's what the Herald Sun or The Age was yeah. for, was to give you a genuine, full idea of what a city actually – what living in that city actually meant. Yeah, and if you actually go to a small town in Australia and you pick up the papers, often you read amazing stories. Yeah. It's yeah. just that we don't hear about it in other places, right? In Melbourne, we don't hear about what's happening in, like, Whittlesea City Council. You know, we don't hear about mm. what's happening. I mean, Whittlesea is where I live. Whittlesea is just 40 <laughs> minutes away, <laughs> let alone, yeah, yeah. like, you know, r- regional rural areas. But, you know, I, yeah, I love just picking up regional newspapers because you read about all these amazing stories often really hyper local stuff which if you know they if they had a bit of money to promote the stories and make it into a video on youtube they would probably have global relevance yeah i mean the, the one of my one of my favorite ever quotes uh, in a craggy article it wasn't me that did it, it was our old media reporter emily watkins she re- i cannot remember exactly which regional paper it was but he said the most fabulous thing he was like the great thing about regional reporting is that almost everything you do is a world exclusive. <laughs> and I absolutely love that. It's like a funny thing to say, but it's also absolutely true. It's something yeah. that no other place is like looking into. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the keys as well. I, I would love for regional journalism in Australia to get a little bit more exposure to, yeah. to the country, you know. Which I guess brings us to the cost of journalism and, and perhaps um, whether, whether we'd like it or not, the actual business model is perhaps failing. How does gen- how does legacy newsrooms to sustain themselves? Is mm. there you know it does feel like there's um, you know this is such a human centred business and yet the business model doesn't justify having as many people doing it anymore. Yeah, um, well, I can bring an example from Indonesia where. Um, so there's this project called Project Multatuli, M-U-L-T-A-T-U-L-I. Um, and it started by a bunch of former uh, managing editors of the Jakarta Post. So these are experienced journalists. Um, and they decided, okay, let's do something a little bit different because journalism in Indonesia, we need something that's a little bit, you know, not not beholden to the oligarchs, etc. So they just started this thing. And it's a public interest journalism. It's all subscription-based, no ads, um, and yeah, and they do things like they hold events where they, you know, if they uh, they wanted to tell a story about, um, you know, street, um, what, what it's like to live on the streets of Jakarta, for example, they do this festival where, yeah, they go and meet people. So I think that this is one of my inspiration beyond mm-hmm. the idea of journalism commoning. Um, and they're still running. They're still doing some amazing things. They're doing hard hitting stuff. They How just, long have they been going for? Uh, maybe about two or three years. Mm. Um, when we look at other examples around the world, we know that they don't sustain themselves for mm. too long. <laughs> you know, mm. But I think that's also the idea that we got from you know the old world of, oh, if you want to build something successful, it needs to be sustainable for 20, 50 years. Mm. But I think... 
you know, if you do something really cool for, two, I mean, a crinkling news, for example, oh, right? The newspaper yeah, yeah. for kids that Saffron Howden yeah. was doing. That was yeah, a really cool great. project, you know, and, you know, it didn't, um, you know, well, they actually had to close it, but but it was a cool thing. And mm. I think I think we have to also change the way we think about what successful means mm. in journalism. Yeah. Yeah. I guess on the, on the other side of that, we've talked a bit about what, you know, what you talk to your students about mm. and what you tell them. What are they telling you? What, what, what do they think of the, the world they're about to enter? I think one, one of the biggest things I want to share is, you know, when you look at um, the statistics of young people today, um, they're more likely to have like five, six jobs, right, in, yeah. in their career, um, which doesn't fit the idea of, you know, the old idea of when you're a journalist, you become a journalist and that's it. You know, you're not allowed to especially you're do... You're constantly no- building on your craft yeah. for years and years and years. And, and you know, if, you, if you've ever worked for a, like, as a comms person... Yeah, yeah. For it compromises some, you. It compromises you. You yeah. can't do it. And I think that's really worrying for them because I, I know that many of them are passionate. They want to do good journalism. But if they've been told that, well, the only way you can do this is by... Being a journalist, that's it. You'll be poor all the time, and you will. And especially if you want to do hard-hitting journalism, yeah. Yeah. there's just not enough jobs to sustain that kind of thing. Uh, for or you know, I mean, there are jobs. I, I have to say, um, you know, there are jobs from uh, if I'm looking at my students as well. But many of them want to be able to do other things as well. You know, so I think if we tell them, or if newsroom editors tell them. Once you're a journalist, that's it. You can't do anything else. It's scary for them. I think they want to have, you know, a more fulfilling life where they want to go, you know, I want to go to the Netherlands and be mm-hmm. and just work for the UN for a bit, you know. And and it's not that you – I mean, I think, I think that's one of the biggest things that needs to change as well, you know, that we need to stop pretending that journalism is this special thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Journalism is also a part of the world, <laughs> you know, journalism. Yeah. And journalists are a part of the world. And I think – we need to be more open to the idea of, yes, yeah, someone who might be a journalist for two years. And also just the job pressure, especially if you're a person of color. Like a lot of my students, one of the, of some of the best students who are people of color, black students, after two, three years, and, you know, in the last few years, everyone talks about diversity. And every time they talk yeah. about diversity, they go to them. Mm. It's tiring, right, mm. to be that, you know, like I'm the face of diversity, you know. Yeah, yeah. And after two years, three years, and they look at other jobs and they look at, this really good job where they, you know, work as a communication something and they get double the salary. (laughs) What do I say to them? Go for it. You know, I think, and a lot of news editors are probably going to to hate me for saying this, but it's (laughs) like, well, if that means you can then do journalism on the side or you can take a break from, from journalism and come back. But also it's, it's the fault of newsrooms that expect they, they, you know, make a, a diversity hire air quotes, and expect that person to solve Mm. the problem rather than actually making very big, you know, big necessary systemic changes that take a lot more work. They want the credit for having done it without Mm. having to do any of the work it takes to do it properly. On that note, um, Tito, what do you you think? You've obviously been, um, you know, pushing for um, greater media diversity in this Mm. country for a long time. 
and it's an ongoing conversation. It feels like a bit of a cyclical conversation. <laughs> Do you see any change in newsrooms? Yeah. I mean, are there, is that because it needs to be up here, not just graduates. It needs to be in the yeah. senior management. It needs to be serious, like proper change. Yeah, and if I can put my journalism studies hat back on, there is a study that shows in the US a lot of people of colour um, they leave journalism once they hit that middle management mm. level because that's where they realize, oh, I can't actually make a difference. Mm. That's that's mm. the limits of my power. So we don't want that to happen in Australia. I think we want to be able to support these people. And, you know, I'm, I'm, when we're talking about diversity, we're not just talking about, you know, ethnic diversity, mm. right? We're also thinking, we're talking about, you know, people from marginalized backgrounds, like, you know, grew up in poverty, et cetera, et cetera, um, because we need a newsroom that understands different experiences of the world and different experiences of Australia. Um, but I think for me personally, I kind of have stopped talking about diversity the way I used to do because now I think I just want to go straight to the core problem, which is racism. Mm. So now I kind of, instead of talking about diversity, I just want to talk about, okay. Are you a racist bastard? Because that's the problem. <laughs> well, yeah, let's look at racism and let's be anti-racist. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. so in terms, because I think with diversity, it's just like, oh, but, you know, now we have diversity. It's like, but have you ever actually thought about Racism. And, and who are you sitting that young person next to? Yeah, like? we're just jamming them into a system and, and exactly. not changing the system yeah, at all. Yeah. 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 So I think that's the, that's the way where I've landed now, where I have to, yeah, I have to say, like, I, I love what the Media Diversity Australia are doing. And I think diversity is an important conversation. But I think... Yeah, I want to be a bit more. I want to be a bit more militant to that. I want to be a bit more. Okay, hold on. Like, let's we, talk about racism. Um, which uh, you're you're now at the uh, Melbourne Press Club, which mm. is interesting because there has been blowback um, against you know Press Club in the past for being a bit of a you know a, a sort of a, a mono club, monocultural yeah. club. What are you hoping to achieve there, and how's that going? Um, I, th- I think In the I most th- diplomatic way. <laughs> yes, um, I think I, I started there just because I thought, yeah, maybe I'll do something that's a bit closer to the centres of power and see what what I can do. And I have to say, my experience has been good. Um, I think because. Um, yeah, a, a lot of the people there are open to being challenged. Um, and one of the things that we're trying to do, and one of the things that we're doing, for example, is the edit. And the edit, if you're interested in, um, we are doing this session called How to Build a Career in Journalism. Um, and that's because, yeah, that came from my worry that a lot of a lot of journalists, after two years, three years of being in the industry, they have you watched The uh, Killers of the Flower Moon? No, I haven't yet, and I'm yeah. a huge Scorsese fan, but I haven't got this one yet. Because uh, I mean, I haven't watched it, but I've read <laughs> I've read the book, and it's that and it, that was written by a journalist, right, David Grant. I mean, he was he works for the New York the New Yorker. So, but that's what we don't have in Australia, which is after five years of working in newsrooms, and if you found a big story. David Grant was able to then go, I'm just going to write this book for a year. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. In Australia, we don't have that. And I think <laughs> that's Nick a McKenzie shame. And, I mean, there's books, but you don't have the audience that's suddenly going to make them mm-hmm. like well, bestsellers. Often, like, a lot of journalists write fiction. Yeah. Where well, they write yeah. books, I mean, like Car- Carolyn Overton or yeah, um, Trent Dalton, if, obviously. Yeah, yeah, Trent Dalton. My my colleague Bernard Keane wrote a spy thriller back in the day. Like, yeah, <laughs> so they have the stamina, you know. But <laughs> yeah. maybe I mean, yeah. But I think that that seems um, 
that that seems quite even more damaging to yourself because when you look at the book sales are not exactly going <laughs> to no, exactly. make you, you know, like what are these, yeah, these exactly. people are masochists. <laughs> like they go from journalism to writing a book. I Jesus. know, yeah. <laughs> and obviously the New Yorker is, you know, to be able to be a staff writer for the New Yorker, yeah, I don't exactly. think there's enough <laughs> job stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think I, I want to see more of that. And I want to see opportunities for uh, yeah, journalists to after two, three. I mean, in academia, which is where I am now, right? There's this this idea of sabbatical leave. Yeah, of yeah. course. There yeah, should yeah. be one in journalism. You know, after seven years, oh, you should nice. just like do a project. You know, like yeah, we'll yeah. leave you alone, do a project. Yeah. I think that would be so cool. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah, this has been amazing, and we can. You're welcome back anytime, Tito. Because <laughs> oh, I feel you. like I've had some sort of therapy here. <laughs> what would be the sort of the the leaving comment that you'd like to make? And I know you are an optimistic person <laughs> about your your sort of thoughts on the future yeah. of the industry. My students are great, so you know, oh, like good. the. The young people, the, the, or not only the young people, the new people who are studying journalism, they're, they're amazing. And I'm not just saying this. Um, they're amazing people. They have a lot of worries about the future of journalism. But I think this is why I'm here. I'm talking about the future of journalism because I care about, yeah, what, what kind of journalism do we need for the future of Australia? And, yeah, how do we support this new young journalist? And, yeah, and please subscribe to some publications, you know, that you like. I think that we need, we need, we need more people to subscribe to to good journalism because I think I mean just one more thing one more thing yes, I'll be very quick please. I think when people talk about when, the, when people talk criticise journalism in Australia if you invest if you ask them about what what kind of journalism they read often then you find out that they haven't actually engaged with the best mm. stuff you know like mm. I I'm lucky because I teach journalism, so I'm forced to read all this amazing journalism. <laughs> but Australia produces amazing journalism. You just have to be able to find them, which is another problem. Triple <laughs> <laughs> We're pretty much out of here. Um, we were going to talk about uh, the this week's episode of Media Watch. Um, we don't have time to go into it, but I did just want to give a little bit of a props <laughs> to Paul Barry and the Media Watch team for their segment on the media coverage of the victims um, of the uh, Israel Hamas war, because um, there has been so much, so many accusations of media bias thrown around from every which direction. It's such an incredibly sort of incendiary topic, I suppose, and they did a bit of a forensic examination of all the newspapers and um, who they'd given sort of um, stories to on both sides. And I suppose sometimes when you take all of the heat and the emotion out of it and do some just old school kind of data gathering. Statistical, yeah, numbers, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It kind of just... It's it's like it's worth doing and it's worth talking about. Um, but maybe uh, next week we can <laughs> we can get into that a bit more. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform, and you can follow us on Twitter at Nad Samble, at Lily Juice, and at the Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via on demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. <laughs> <laughs>